You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which no good and camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, it's, it's been an episode or so since you've been on, but but how's everything going, bro? Oh, things are, you know, well, incredibly busy. Uh, we're coming right down to the wire here, uh, but things are going well. Good to hear, man. I know campaigns are never easy. They are very much time consuming. And so it's good to hear that you are in good spirits, man. I, I myself uh, had a pretty good Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I got a chance to go to a family reunion. Um, and so that was fun. The last family reunion I actually hosted here in Atlanta. And that is a, a big job, but I enjoyed it. This time I got to just enjoy myself with other families hosting. And it was refreshing, man. One of the things I really like about family reunions is not only that obviously you get to see family, it's it's the fellowship, but it's also the encouragement that I, I just get from the elders, seeing uh, folks from the civil rights generation and them hearing about what we're trying to do with the Ann campaign and just them being so proud of what we're doing, letting me know that they see us, that they that they hear what's going on and uh, that they're proud of, 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 of the things that we're trying to accomplish. And so that was very, very encouraging. Uh, folks knowing about the and campaign that I had no idea or even paying attention, but who have uh, upheld that legacy, that civil rights legacy for so long. So I was I came back energized, man. I'm ready to have these conversations. I'm ready to act and really get into it, man. No, that's awesome. Where'd you all gather? So we were in uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, awesome. uh, which is like like southern southern Missouri. And it, it was great, man. We learned a whole bunch about the family history uh, and ate great food, just just had a, a, a great time. You know, it's always fun for the kids, too. So they got to meet some of their cousins they had, hadn't met before and just have a great time running around. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I actually learned this weekend that uh, the our family reunion is going to be in July. We're going to worship together as a family at, uh, at my church. So I felt a little bit of pressure, and it was similar to what you uh, talked about, because when they told me they wanted to do it that way, I thought immediately about preaching uh, to the elders uh, and before the elders. And so everybody pray for me as we lead up to that, because that puts a little bit of added pressure uh, when sure. you know that the, the family elders are going to be there and you got to bring a word. Yeah, you you going you definitely going to have to bring it, man. So we'll, we'll be praying for you on that. Shout out to St. James. Uh, African Methodist Episcopal Baptist Church in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, for hosting us as well. So always good times. And that's one of the the, the good things that uh, summertime brings is family reunions and things of that nature. We got a lot to talk about, Chris. A lot has happened since we last talked. A lot has happened just since the last episode. Uh, So as always, before we really get into it, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. As usual, you know what it is. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Imagine that. 
Throughout history, the poets, the prophets, and mystics have usually done a better job of predicting the future than pundits, politicians, or scientists. This is how English writer Paul Kingsnorth, a former atheist turned Christian, begins his essay entitled, The Antichrist Now Rules Us All. I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about Kingsnorth outside of the fact that his name sounds like it came straight out of an episode of uh, Game of Thrones. But his recent article in Unheard magazine was very, very thought provoking. and I figured that we talk about it on this here podcast. In the article, Kingsnorth talks about the spiritual warfare going on in modernity and how a large part of the problem is that we don't consider the spiritual and transcendent at all. He says our age doesn't look kindly on anything it can't that can't be quantified. In other words, if we can't count it, then it doesn't count. Ephesians chapter six, uh, verse 12 tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In addition, uh, Second Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse four says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. One of the things that Christians should get from these two scriptures is that we should never ignore or discount the spirit world. But it's often hard to tell. Maybe it's just me. It seems hard for me to tell that we factor in the supernatural in our cultural, political and social interactions. Maybe it's just me. Maybe everybody does. And I'm missing it. But this is the conversation, the conversation about the supernatural. This is the kind of conversation I think makes a lot of us feel uncomfortable. It's the part of the faith that we have trouble explaining to our colleagues. And so many of us would rather not discuss it or address it at all. This type of spiritual talk is the stuff that many Christians profess in church, at least some of us, but don't necessarily want to be heard discussing in polite society. This is what a lot of modernist Christians run away from in order to make the faith seem more palatable to their peers. Our desire to avoid conversations about the supernatural perhaps demonstrates our surrender to modernity. Now, Kings North uh, goes as far as to say and to suggest that the ways of modernity are nothing less than satanic. He called the modern machine the Antichrist. I did get a chance to watch one of King's North, King North's uh, lectures, and he described the machine as the web of technological control and materialism. It's basically the rebellion against God. He talks about how uh, he talks about the way that Satan inverts reality, presenting disorder as order and truth as lies. That child with a beating heart inside of you is not alive, nor worthy of any consideration at all. Men can have periods. Men can have babies. Your forefathers and their institutions can oppress and steal from black people and Native Americans for hundreds of years. But you don't have to reckon with that reality. And when anyone brings it up, they're being divisive. Those are all lies. Those are all inverted truths. Kingsnorth says that the modern way of seeing things excludes the supernatural and religious transcendence. In response, 
Western Christianity, that's the Christianity of Western Europe and Northern America, has progressively abandoned its commitment to transcendence and simply become a philosophy. It's been brought down to earth, he says, and and confined to the realm of social activism, politics, and ideas. Now, one thing I'll push back a little bit on King's North uh, here, and something he doesn't say that I, I think should be said, is that social activism, politics, and ideas are not bad things. But in no way should our God be limited to the material world. Our faith is not simply an instrument to achieve social ends. I think we do need to make that point. Kings North says what modernity wants is the death of God, the death of an authority that might overrule or reject our conclusions, our beliefs, our feelings, and our proclivities. In fact, that's the worst thing that you could ever do in modern society is overrule and reject someone's conclusions, beliefs, feelings, and proclivities. Let the truth not get in the way of any of those things. He goes on to quote Augusto del Norte, who uh, says, our world will only permit what we create ourselves. So anything that's not created by human hands in modernity will not be accepted. Certainly not accepted as any type of authority. The article also talks about how modernity is constantly trying to disconnect us from the past and uproot us from tradition. Now, again, this is another place where I'll push back a little bit on what he was saying. I hope we all know that some things in the past need to be left there or even need to be violently severed from the onward march of time. Likewise, some traditions need to be dismantled and rejected. But these days, it seems that everything in the past, everything tied to to tradition, is seen as an anchor stalling our progress towards some type of utopia. I think that's problematic. I'm really surprised. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised nowadays, but at one point I was really surprised about how many Christians seem to embrace that philosophy. Certain things are right, not because of their actual merits, but because they were said by someone who's younger or because they're contrary to tradition. I think that's a very unwise and uncritical way of thinking. Kings North goes on to talk about how uh, all this connects to Europe's history of colonization. Quoting Simone uh, Vey, he says that colonization can only be achieved by one method by uprooting a people from its traditions. And he said, that's what's going on in the West as we speak. Our European friend explains that Europe has a long history of of this type of uprooting, of demanding the kind of assimilation that leads to a loss of one's tradition. And where does all this lead us? Well, Kings North believes that it leads to fragmentation. It leads to nihilism or where you kind of dismiss consequences. You don't believe in consequences and the death of the sacred. He says that the twin revolutionary engines of the post-war era were scientism and sex. The first usurped the role of religion and culture, reducing all life to the level of the measurable and controllable. The second, via the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the resulting permissive uh, society, unleashed a radical individualism cored upon sexual desire, which would lead to the fragmentation of everything from nationhood to family. 
Interesting. What can we say about this conversation? What is there to agree with? What is there that we can take out of it? One thing that I'll say is that our foundation for engaging politics, our foundation for engaging culture and society in general has to be more than just philosophical or ideological. So on that point, I think I agree with Kings North. If, if, if our faith is just a philosophy, if it's just another type of ideology or a brand of ideology, then I think we're missing something very important. Our faith must impact the material world, but our perspective should not be limited by the material world because there's another reality outside of that. We must recognize and factor in the spiritual realm. For instance, we, we should pray for our enemies, not simply as a formality, but we should do it in sincerity and as an acknowledgement that the issues between us are not just carnal, but spiritual. We must recognize that the answers and solutions aren't fully taken care of by policy and protest, even when policy and protest might be necessary. One issue, again, that I have with what Kings North was saying, and then I'll pass it to you, Chris, is that he seems to romanticize the past, right? Like we went from this golden age of morality into this hellish nightmare. And I don't just I just don't think that's how it works. In many ways, we're going from sins of the past to sins of the future, right? The past wasn't some golden age. And we can talk about all the stuff, whether it be slavery, whether it be um, other issues that show that we weren't coming out of some perfect uh, period. But I do think that he has a point when he talks about us ignoring the supernatural to our own demise and how we despise tradition. And I think I think that really is important. So, Chris, the first question I would ask you is, are that are the forces that pull us away from spiritual realities and the transcendent satanic in origin? Is this machine that he talks about satanic? Go ahead, Chris. So I also thought that it was a uh, a really thought provo- provoking uh, sort of a piece and something. There's a lot in it to uh, agree with and a lot to disagree with. What it made me think about in terms of the spirituality uh, point here uh, is is really this concept of of how unintelligent this approach is when we think about making our whole sort of public conversation and conversation about what's going on with the world only anchored in uh, this unorged philosophy, this philosophy that's unorged from uh, from the past, that's unconnected to the past, that, that doesn't take into account that there's something greater than us, something outside of us. Uh, not only is it unspiritual, uh, as you rightly said, it's often uncritical and unintelligent. And to see so many intelligent people or otherwise intelligent people give themselves to something that is, uh, in addition to being unspiritual, uncritical and unintelligent, to me, it gives credence to the idea that there is uh, that there's spiritual warfare to be had um, on the whole. I think that as uh, the, the other piece is that as believers more and more get caught up in this sort of unspiritual approach to life, even I preached a sermon on this uh, about unspiritual Christianity. There is this credence again to the argument that at least we have to consider. Uh, that this is um, not just sinful humanity slipping into uh, a bad place, but an actual spiritual attack. Um, 
that we have to deal with in that way. So I, I think that there's something to it. And I certainly love the approach uh, that Kingsdorf seems to be taking in the piece because it um, it caused a question to the floor. And even though there's a lot in the piece and we can uh, talk more about it uh to disagree with it certainly frames the conversation uh, in a way that pushes us to think about this in a different way and one that I think is is helpful for us to look at this frame uh, and to discuss. One of the things that I got out of the article when he talks about this machine being the Antichrist, what's pulling us from the transcendent and the supernatural and understanding of that or even any type of connection to that being the Antichrist, um, was that we need to take that more seriously. I'm not sure that we take it very seriously that we do live in a society that does not like to consider the transcendent at all. That think it's that thinks it's crazy to talk about the spirit world or just irrelevant or or has no type of impact on what we're doing. And so as we're pulled from the supernatural, as we're pulled from tradition, I think Christians need to take that very seriously because there are some truths that are being inverted that can destroy us. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. And, and I would also say this. We need to take very seriously and understand, maybe is a better way to pull it, put it, that science does not have all the answers. We've talked about on this show time and time again, we are not anti-science. I think that science is a gift from God, but science does not give us all of the answers. And no Christian should should kind of fall into scientism as a replacement for the spiritual and for the religion. Right. The other thing we need to realize is that believing that people throughout history can perfect the world as we become more progressive or that the world automatically gets better as we fix it is not biblical. So if you believe that, that's your choice. It is not something that comes from the Bible or that fits within orthodox beliefs. So let's be very clear about that. We are broken. The world is broken. And will remain broken to some extent until Christ returns. And so if anything, and I'll, I'll shoot it back to you, but if anything, what I pulled from this is it's not a joke. Some of the the the, the truths that are being inverted. It, it's a problem when Christians talk about politics and they talk about engaging society as if the faith is only a mechanism or only an instrument to achieve what we want. And we need to start taking that more seriously because there is an element of antichrist within those positions. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I, I think one of the evidences of uh, the element of antichrist in those positions is um, one of the things that I would push back in this article a little bit, because even the concept of, of sort of tyrannical scientism we have to look at that because so much of what we are giving ourselves to in sort of cultural liberalism these days is not backed up by science, right? Like science would suggest uh, that, you know, that there really is uh, a, a difference if you use the principles of science and the observable, uh, measurable universe, then you would come to the conclusion that there's a difference between a man and a woman. Right. Uh, science will reinforce that um, that concept. But we have chosen to overrule science uh, in, in order to advance our own sort of thought um, and even bending science uh, to uh, to sort of bow the knee to this overall vision of of created progress. But it's not 
is not really science. And on and on, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, preborn life, everything that we know and teach about humanity and what makes uh, an individual, a human person, uh, be it, you know, distinct DNA, heartbeats, brain waves, uh, you know, reaction to physical sensation. Um, this is all what we use to define any kind of humanity. But in this particular context, uh, we want to take away all personhood. Again, that's not something that's, that's deeply supported by science. Um, and so even our willingness to to sort of convert scientism and to uh, reconstruct what science actually is, um, I think it is it reinforces this idea that there's an element of of antichrist, uh, a a sort of recklessness um, involved in this whole approach. Um, that that even goes in, in my mind beyond scientism. If if we would even stop at science and go no further, uh, I think we would be moving in a in a healthier direction than we are now. Yeah, and I think the article reinforces the truth that we are not of this world, right? Um, that's something we shouldn't lose. It also uh, makes us recall the reality of the the reality of the supernatural. And how that reality forces us to deal with the limits of our power and the limits of what we can and should do. If there's nothing transcendent, if there's nothing above us, is that if there's no authority that is greater than us, then we're God. And Christians can't be duplicitous when it comes to that idea. We have to be very clear that we are created, that we're not the creators, right? Um, and, and so it's I think it's a good reminder. I think the language in this article is very strong when you're talking about Antichrist, when you're talking about the death of God. But in a way, it's almost necessary, again, because I don't know that a lot of Christians are taking this as seriously as they should. Again, I kind of think he romanticizes history a little bit that it's it's you know, you see this with a lot of conservative writing that we're we're. You know, we're, we're we're coming out of something that was so much better. But that's, you know, to say that is to ignore a lot of the negative that was happening in the past. And so I don't I don't go there with them. But I do see a problem when we leave, when we ignore the supernatural and when we're completely uprooted from tradition. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, the next story comes out of Chris's uh, hometown, which is Chicago. There was an article in the Chicago Tribune this week about how school dress codes are making some students feel slighted. Now, I don't know that students have ever been in love with dress codes, so there's nothing new about that. But what is somewhat new, at least to me, is that some adults are basically backing them up on this and saying that this is almost a form of oppression. Here's what the article says. It says half of the city of Chicago's more than 600 public schools have set conditions around modesty that go beyond limiting nudity, such as bans on leggings, spaghetti strap tops and skirts or dresses shorter than fingertip length. Uh, more than 300 imposed bans on uh, baggy clothes, 
pants worn low, hoodies or hair care items like do-rags or head wraps. These are all uh, 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 bands or dress codes that, that many Chicago public schools have. But educators say that some educators say that such restrictions uh, can put girls and children of color at higher risk of being punished. The CPS, the Chicago Public Schools Code of Conduct, says students who are not uh, who do not uphold the dress code may be given detentions or excluded from extracurricular activities. And it allows for additional consequences if a student's attire could disrupt the learning environment. A Kenwood Academy High School senior said that the school's rules have left her feeling that students' full identities are not welcome in the classroom. She said that they want us to feel like our blackness is criminal, our blackness is not supposed to be there, uh, and our womanness too, and our womanness too. Let me make sure I say that clearly, because they still police our bodies uh, as well uh, as well with the dress codes. Chris. I'm interested to hear your opinion on this, because when you ask me uh, not being able to wear a do rag at school or even if it were like a Bruce Springsteen bandana on your head or to wear a really short skirt is far from oppressive, unjust or unfair. Um, School, in my opinion, isn't primarily about self-expression. Now, it doesn't have to prohibit some level of of self-expression, but that certainly doesn't seem to me. Like it should be the priority, um, especially when you consider that these rules have a clear purpose and what's lost by following them doesn't seem to be a priority of education. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just don't place expression over the importance of some type of order. And I think that we we do ourselves a disservice when we conflate things that are purely expressive with substantive matters of justice. So if my sons were to come up to me and say they felt like they were oppressed because they couldn't wear a do-rag to school, they probably wouldn't receive a, a warm reception. Um, now, I will say this. I will say that when it comes to hairstyles, I think some schools could be a little more considerate of culture, of uh, different types of hair and things of that nature. But in general, I support more of the discipline side of this conversation and, and the and what and the purpose that these codes are serving more than just the expression of of young people uh, inside the school. Uh, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this, Chris? Yeah, so I actually have, uh, not only is this coming out of Chicago, um, when I was in high school, I was one of the organizers of something called Organized Students of Chicago. Uh, and we had a, a real conversation around this because we were organizing high school students uh, at that time. And one of the things that some of the students involved with the organization uh, wanted to uh, sort of organize around was this uh, same concept of uh, the uh, the dress codes, which were in Chicago public schools uh, when I was in CPS almost 20 years ago. Um, you know, similar things, you know, baggy pants and, uh, you know, uh, Things to try to address modesty. I, th- I found it hilarious in the article uh, that they criticized Chicago public schools for having codes of modesty that go beyond nudity, as if nudity is the only uh, thing in the world that is immodest. Right. Um, so we had this conversation, and as high school students, we were able to arrive at exactly what you just expressed, uh, that 
this is probably not a deeply substantive justice issue and that there were probably other things uh, in the, the Chicago public schools that we could organize around. And were we sitting here 20 years later looking at a Chicago public schools that had resolved issues around um, you know, the, the massive failure of generations of students when it comes to actually being able to educate them, uh, and we had resolved those issues and we have now moved on to a conversation around dress code, uh, I would be much more ready to entertain the conversation. Um, but when I'm still looking at a Chicago public schools where less than a third of students are college ready when they graduate, um, you know, 20% uh, of our elementary school students uh, and less than 25% of our middle school and high school students are proficient in math, uh, 25% uh, of, of elementary schools proficient in reading, 24% of high school students proficient in reading. Like to me, that's the story in Chicago public schools, not whether, you know, somebody can wear a spaghetti strap, you know, top. Like I, I can't believe that the flagship newspaper in the city of Chicago spent this much of its resources and, you know, sort of digital and print real estate um, on this topic. And, and trust me, this is not to disregard, uh, you know, high school students' feelings. I know that students don't, uh, don't like dress codes because I didn't like it 20 years ago. Probably high school students, if high school is still around 20 years from now, won't like the dress codes. One thing I will tell you uh, that I think the dress codes do that is important for education is teach us and not so much because it talks about in the article, well, we got to get kids ready for the professional world. And some of the young people push back on this concept, um, you know, of getting ready for the professional world. I do think you have to be, you have to learn at some point in order to be a successful adult to do stuff that you don't want to do, right? Like, whether it be how you dress or something you want to say, you can't say someplace you want to go, you can't go. There will be limitations on what you can do in the society. And there will be things that you want to do. Uh, and based on where you work, where you live, what you're doing, like you won't be able to just go and do it. And that's actually something valuable to learn as a young person is how to discipline oneself to do something that you got to do that you don't necessarily want to do. Um, and so to that point, I think it's beneficial. I mean, I, I just, I, I, I'm not ready for, for this particular argument. And I think I have, uh, like I said, a, a, a unique perspective on it because it's a, it's a specific issue that I actually wrestled with, with a group of students when I was a high school student in Chicago public schools myself. Um, and I don't think that it has changed drastically. I still don't think that this is, like the story in Chicago public schools. Yeah. One thing. So you, you, you say that a valuable lesson to learn is that you don't just get to do whatever you want to do all the time. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, but we know that there are a lot of people in high places, by the way, that would disagree with that, with that say, well, that's the problem, right? Maybe we should be able to do whatever we want to do, regardless of what the purpose of it is, because self-expression is, is everything right? That's that's the that's, that's the absolute you know most important thing that we have is self self expression. And I think I can point to different places in the Bible that would would disagree with that. 
But let me say this. One one thing I want to point out is, is being able to wear a do-rag at school has nothing to do with blackness. And and I think it's a very sad view of black identity, of any cultural identity, to tie it to something like that. That has and that's I think that's part of the problem with many of our newer uh justice movements and all that has nothing to do with being black. Being disciplined and being forced to, as you said, do things you don't want to do has nothing to do, is not just a violation of your identity. And we just talked about how colonization does strip people and make them assimilate. But we're talking about in more substantive ways, right? We're talking about religion. We're talking about things that are deeply ingrained in a people that are truly part of, more so a part of their identity. That doesn't mean that you go to school and you can do whatever you want because you say it's a part of my culture. And you see that so much. It's, a, it's almost a relativism to say, if my culture does this, I should be able to do it wherever I go. Not, not helpful at all to me. But when I, as I was reading this, Chris, as I was reading through this, uh, this article, it reminded me of the Hidden Tribe study that came out a few years ago. And this study did a really good job of detailing America's ideological tribes and providing a lot of data and insight in that regard. And if you haven't hadn't read the Hidden Tribes study, you need to read it. It's a few years old, but it's still well worth reading. It's something that I, I quote and, and, and think about quite a bit. Now, there was in the Hidden Tribes study, there was one question that they used, Chris, to determine whether someone was more progressive or more conservative. And it's a simple question, but I thought it was, it was an, it, very insightful. The question was this. Is it more important for children to be disciplined? Or to be creative. Now, conservatives usually chose discipline. And progressives usually chose creativity. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. Obvious, obviously, creativity and discipline aren't necessarily in conflict. Most of us uh, would probably like our, our children to have both. But when they do conflict, like we see in this example that we get, you know, that I was just talking about it in Chicago schools, when they when you do have to prioritize one or the other, like parents often have to do. Which one do you choose and whichever one you choose? Kind of shows us which ideological tribe you lean toward. Okay, now for me, Chris, I'd love to hear what you have to say. For me, it's not even close. Um. I, I want my kids to be creative, but I think that type of creativity isn't a foundation. Whereas discipline, whereas order is a foundation upon which you can have creativity and have other things. But the creativity sounds secondary if you don't have any discipline. Um, and, and I'll also say this, Chris, from a biblical standpoint, I don't know how you serve God well. I don't know how you serve others well without discipline. We know that the Bible talks a lot about obedience. I don't know that you can be obedient and just be creative without any type of discipline, without any type of solid foundation. The creativity by itself is not creativity is not bad, but by itself, it, it seems to me could very easily become sinking sand. Because everything around you becomes what you want it to be. Instead of first starting with truth, first starting on what you should obey, first starting with the realities and how we can create human flourishing, and then being creative within a framework, 
of truth, within a framework of discipline, within a framework of order. Now, we know that we have to be careful about making obedience the sole virtue, too. That's not what I'm saying. But it just seems to me that that that's the side that I would take on that question. So so first of all, Chris, where do you land on that question and what are the implications of that back and forth? Yeah, if if you're you know asking a, a yes or no, like the survey, I think that uh, I would say that discipline is more important because discipline uh, can encourage and facilitate creativity. Um, I think a lot more easily and readily than creativity will facilitate discipline, um, especially if if we think about creativity as only as a lack of structure. Right? I, I don't I don't know where that definition of creativity came from, but it seems like the one that prevails in our society. Like uh, there are people in our world who would bristle at the mention of the word. Um, obedience. It's like, why would you dare encourage somebody to even think about, try to be uh, obedient? Uh, that's that's such a, a terrible thing. Uh, but it, it exemplifies the struggle in which we are engaged, uh, where we need a renewal, uh, certainly in the church, but I think in the broader society, of this sort of commitment to structure, this desire to serve uh God and to serve others, right? What you have in this in this world of, of, of expression, personal expression as primary uh, is, is this forgetfulness of, of the fact that we are a society, that we are supposed to serve others and not just ourselves. Uh, because that self-expression being primary uh, is just another way uh, to get at this point of being in a world where the number one thing uh, is me. And it's not about how I can serve my community, how I can even exist in community. It's just about, do I get to do all the things uh, that I want to do? Uh, And it is, it's choking the life out of our world. Um, And, and it's the the struggle that we are engaged with because folks who have committed themselves to this way of thinking um, have been so good at denying reality uh, that many are even comfortable denying the reality that our world and our country are having the life choked out of it. Uh, even though any of us who have eyes and walk around our communities can see it happening. And we have to start asking these questions. I mean, th- this is a whole like long investigative journalistic piece in the Chicago Tribune uh, certainly the flagship paper of the third largest city in the United States, probably considered a, a pretty national paper. Uh, and it's talking about the ability of Chicago public school students to express themselves through do-rags uh, and halter tops when the data tell us that they can't express themselves on a written sheet of paper, right? Um, and, and, and this is the problem. Like, we need to be investigating why Chicago public schools can't get more than 32% of young people ready for college. Why can't Chicago public schools get more than 25% of high schoolers reading proficiently? That needs investigative journalism. I haven't seen that investigation, but we want kids to be able to express themselves by putting on a do-rag. I, I think that the priorities are so, so badly off when we look at the world this way. What's the value of that expression? Right. Um, 
Because if you think about it, to have discipline as a creative, to have discipline as an artist actually actually allows you to do more. Right. Allows you to express yourself in different ways. Um, and, and so to say, you know, you're somehow taking something away from somebody that gets distractions out of the classroom like these. These aren't arbitrary. This isn't just somebody that says, you know what? I don't like these kids. I don't like those kids of color. Let's just take away everything in their culture that they can identify with. No, they have a they have a, a, they have a, a, a true purpose and they're trying to take distractions out of the classroom. Are there just some disparities maybe when it comes to um, certain kids being uh, penalized for that? Maybe. Maybe so. Maybe there's other ways that we can address that. That's never a reason to completely get rid of guidelines that have a very clear purpose. And the purpose wasn't at all discriminatory here. Right. From what from what I can see in the places where the enforcement of dress code is uh, discriminatory, uh, you those that is an environment where the enforcement of everything is discriminatory and you need training and development for the people who are enforcing uh, reasonable rules, not change the rules to something that's unreasonable. That, that's right. And that's why I gave the example not only of the do-rag, but also of the American bandana or the, you know what I'm saying, a Confederate flag bandana being worn on the head of, of somebody else. This is not helpful. This is not adding to, you're there to get an education. This is not adding to your education. Are there, are, can we find ways to kids for kids to be expressive and creative without doing things that take away, uh, that, that create distractions? And, and you, you, make an, you make a very excellent point. Guys, we got to think we got to think about this a little more deeply and say, if they can't express themselves on a piece of paper, if they can't write an essay and articulate themselves in a way that expresses whether it's their pain, whatever they're going through, what value is being able to wear a orange do rag on Tuesday? But it's this idea that anything that in any way that you restrict me is oppressive. Any way that you take away my self-expression is doing something to me that rises to um, the level of injustice. Again, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. I think it's unfortunate that, like you said, the Chicago Tribune or any adults would really add into this. Yeah, yeah, it could have an effect on, on a certain group of students. Okay. Well, let's let's find a way to correct that. Maybe we need to articulate the rules better to that, you know, that group of people's families or whatever. But that doesn't mean that you get rid of all rules. And we're seeing a lot of this. I mean, especially in the uh, Pacific Northwest, you're seeing people really act on these type, these kind of ideas of anytime there's a, you know, a disparity, then you have to act and you have to take that rule away. I think we can think through this. I certainly don't think it has anything to do with being black. A lot of the black folks I know, a lot of the black teachers that I've ever had, a lot of the black folks have been in education. My my wife's father is uh, has for years been in education, been the superintendent of schools and things of that nature. You can't go up to him and say that has something to do with being black, being able to just wear whatever you want to wear and do whatever you want to do. Like they're taking something away from you as if discipline doesn't matter. And we got to we have to embrace that a little more because this 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 is just uh, again, it doesn't make good sense. And we talked about that before. I'll let you end it, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say quickly, I think that there is a. Uh, a crime being committed against black people in Chicago through the public schools, and it is not 
that they cannot wear bandanas and spaghetti straps in the schools. Uh, the it, it is the fact that the school system for generations has failed to educate African-American children. It's a district that's over 90 percent um, people of color. And we have people, again, you have 32 percent college ready, under 25 percent proficient in math, hovering around 25 percent proficient in reading. That's the crime, not discrimination in the dress code. Again, we see the left choosing performance over substance. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the Ann Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we, you know, we have we have to talk about this issue. I I wasn't necessarily trying to avoid it, but um it's not pleasant. Um I wish I wish it wasn't something that we had to talk about every other week, another shooting, uh, more children dying, more more people in different places dying. Um, because of the epidemic of violence that we have in this country, as you know by now, um in Uvalde, Texas, there was a shooting where I believe at this point, uh, 21 uh, people died, most of them children um, from, you know, a, a man who first shot his grandmother and then went into the school and just uh, uh, had his way. Just a, a, a very evil act. I don't even know how to explain it. New information has come out that's saying that law enforcement actually waited outside of the door of the room where he was killing people actually wouldn't allow parents to go in, was like arresting parents and all this other stuff and chose not to break down a door to get into the room to save these children. One of the officers or or one of the folks that was in there said something about, well, you know that if we would have broken that down and we didn't have the proper shields or whatever, we could have gotten killed. That's one of the biggest head scratching quotes I've ever heard in my life. I hadn't. I, once you enter law enforcement, I thought it was known by everyone that you are accepting the idea or the commitment, rather, that you are willing to sacrifice your life to save other people. That That's part of the job. And to hear people who are in law enforcement try to justify. Standing at a door where you hear children getting shot and waiting. I don't know what they were waiting for. Thankfully, I think it was somebody, some folks from Border Patrol or whatever, 
came in and said, no, we're not waiting and went in there and, 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 and got the kids out, the ones that were left. It's just appalling. It's a I mean, I don't know how you get to the point as a law enforcement officer to not know what your one of your primary duties. Are. Chris, what, what are your thoughts just about what, what's gone down, uh, the fallout and, and where we go from here? Yeah, I mean, it, it is such a, uh, a heartbreaking thing to continue to see uh, gun violence just, you know, crippling communities throughout the country. These kinds of mass shootings that snatch the headlines often are terrible tragedies. The, the ongoing shootings uh, in cities across, across the country, uh, not the least of which would be my city of Chicago, uh, are, are, are very deeply troubling. And I've been talking about it a lot, this sort of very difficult milieu of too many hurting people, too much broken structure and too many guns uh, in our society. And, and those things coming together to, to create these tragedies. And so when I hear about what keeps coming out more and more about how law enforcement addressed this particular shooting in Uvalde, Texas, it again just sounds like to me like another breakdown of structure. Uh, you know, I, I say this all the time and I'll continue to say it. One of the things that we are, the difficulties that we are facing uh, in this society is the unwillingness or inability of people to play their role within the society and within specific institutions. Um, when you take on, I don't, I can't make anybody become a law enforcement officer, uh, but when you become a law enforcement officer, you have to play that role within the society. You have to play that role within the institution, or you have to get out of that space so that somebody who is willing and able to play that role uh, can be in that position so that they can play that role. Uh, and I think that's a breakdown. I think it is related to uh, what we see, uh, I think, here in Chicago and Cook County, which is you have a, a set of folks who should be prosecuting crime but don't like to play that role. They'd rather play the role of uh, rehabilitators and sort of advocates for those who are uh, engaged with law enforcement system. And again, as, as I continue to say, like we need people who do that in the society. But if you're the prosecutor, that's not your role. Uh, we need people who there are all kinds of things that you can do in the society that don't require you to run into a room when, when there's an active shooter. Being a law enforcement officer is that one of the uh, very few places within the society where we do ask you to run into a room uh, when there's an active shooter. And I, so I, I just see it coming back to that, Justin. Like, it's a broader societal issue that we keep seeing playing out in a lot of different places uh, where we just have this inability and unwillingness to play a particular role in the society and inside of institutions. No, that's real. And one of the major conversations, Christian, in addition, in addition to what you just said, is what is the cause of this? Is it all the guns everywhere? And I'll be honest, I'm a gun owner um, and people are having this conversation. What's the cause of it? Is, is it guns everywhere or is it culture? I think we are in a bad place if we can't say that the access that this young man had to a gun isn't a major part of this problem. That he was able to go get this gun and go straight, you know, and and have all these issues 
and still able to get a hold of this gun and and go do what he did. You can be someone who supports the Second Amendment to a certain extent, right? And still say, we can have sensible gun reform. What's wrong? Why, why, Why do we have, why does it have to be all or nothing, right? Why can't we talk about universal background checks? Why can't we talk about raising the age maybe to 21? And, and, and I, I hear people, there's some inconsistency with that. Well, 18-year-olds can do this and can do that. Guess what? I'm okay with some in, inconsistency in the in policy sometimes if it makes sense, right? I'm not going to be so consistent that I do something that, that just doesn't make sense. If it can prevent this from happening, I'm willing to look into it. I'm willing to take it into very serious consideration. Maybe we need red flag laws. Where family members can say, hey, this person has behavior is problematic. There needs to be due process. But this person's behavior makes him a threat to society. Therefore, he should not he or she should not have a gun. To to come into this conversation and not admit that how accessible guns are in this country can be a problem is. It's just avoiding the issue again. It's one of those things where you're standing by your ideology and you're standing by uh, your original point. To the point of, of of absurdity. Now, I also think it's absurd to, to not consider the culture. The culture has a made the violence that we see, the willingness to people for people to do what we've seen done in the last two months, is a cultural issue too. It is possible to have two cities where there's just as many guns, and the culture make one city a lot more violent than the other. And this is where I'll push. The first is a pushback on conservatives. This is my pushback on progressives. Yes, culture matters. Yes, we have to address, and I don't care in what race it is or any, anything else, we have to address parts of the culture that are problematic. Every culture has pathologies. Yes, it's wrong for majority culture to blame everything that's happening to black people on black pathology. I'm with you 100% there, but I will not stand next to you and say that there's no pathology in any community and that that pathology has to be addressed primarily within that community or within that culture. In American culture, American society has some pathologies dealing with violence that we have to address or you will not solve this problem. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you laid out real well. It's, this is not an either or question when you come to the to the cause. I think it is um, this this very difficult milieu uh, of, of broken down uh, families and other institutions, uh, lots and lots of hurting people, and too many guns. Uh, and so we need to be working on addressing all of those things. Uh, I, I do believe that we need to have more common sense gun restrictions. Uh, I, I happen to believe in the Second Amendment, but I also happen to believe that a person's right to life uh, is more important than a person's right to bear arms. Uh, and, you know, Justin, you're an attorney, so you might have greater responsibility uh, to debate that in, uh, in, in pure legal terms. Uh, but as as a, as a preacher who is not an attorney, I will argue uh, from a moral standpoint that it is always more important that we protect the rights of a person to live, uh, you know, above the, uh, you know, right to bear arms 
when the two are in tension and conflict. I don't think that they are in total tension and conflict, but I do think that there are some things that we can do uh, to strengthen our ability uh, to make sure that we have reasonable gun laws. And you you talked about them, uh, background checks. Uh, maybe raising the age, certainly red flag uh, laws, not that uh, subvert due process, but that can at least initiate the process uh, when other folks who are not closer to that individual would not know to initiate the process. Uh, so it's not skipping due process. It's just initiating uh, a, a process. Um, so we got to do that, but we have to work on the other two, right? Like we have to uh, work on, uh, as, as you called it, the, the, the pathology, uh, this brokenness in our family structures and other uh, structures throughout the society. Uh, we've got to work on those inside of every community and inside of the larger American society. Um, and we have to be uh, serious uh, about uh, the number of people who are hurting in our society. Uh, mental illness is a real thing, uh, and we need to be targeting resources. We need to be training and developing people. Uh, we need to be doing a lot more to address the large numbers of people who are hurting uh, in our society, especially after two years of, of COVID. Not that all this started with COVID, but I do think that we haven't even we have not yet seen uh, the long term impacts of two years of even more exaggerated isolation. Uh, than we were already dealing with pre-COVID. Uh, so all three of those things are, are big contributors here. And, and for anybody who says that we have to focus on only one of those lanes, uh, I think that they're probably being disingenuous uh, and, and more ideological than uh, practical. Yeah, I would I would agree with you. Um, the other thing we need to stay away from, because I saw some of this, too. And again, this is people just jumping on their their soapbox, jumping on certain bandwagons once they get an opportunity based on the facts of a, a major event. But I saw some folks out there saying, see, this is why I told you we don't need police. Police are no good. They never get anything right. They're just not helpful. We don't need them. That is a ridiculous comment. You cannot impute what happened. In this instance, on every police officer in America, I know personally police officers who would not have stood there and let that happen. I know personally police officers that would put their lives on the line for me and you, even though you don't like them. So let's stop with the silliness like that. That that doesn't even you shouldn't be able to you shouldn't even be able to say that without blushing because it's ridiculous. Don't put this on every police officer. Don't put this on every community. Let's deal with the issue with the nuance that it demands. And until we're ready to do that, don't say that you're part of the solution. If you want to hold on to your narrative more than you want to actually solve the problem and get to the root of the of the issue, then you're not helping us right now. Don't use this just to beat up police. Don't use this just to pawn off the issue only to mental illness as if the accessibility of, drug, of of guns to the mentally ill don't have a part a role to play in this conversation and what are we going to do to make them less assess, accessible let's have a serious conversation guys not one that we we just want to win and prove that we were right the whole time but one that gets to the core of the issue chris take us out man yeah i mean i think that that's the whole thing we got to this is a multifaceted issue. It needs multifaceted solutions. Um, and for me, it's, it's just a matter of prioritizing that very basic right, which I think is 
is probably the first and most important to protect, which is the right to actually live. And I think we got to do everything we can to protect that right. That's a word. Well, as always, we thank y'all for joining us on the Church Politics Podcast today. If you ever want to give, you can go to our website, and that's the andcampaign.org. Uh, and campaign a n d campaign.org you can donate there you can go to our patreon which is patreon.com slash church politics and give to become a part of the movement don't just observe what we're trying to do i know y'all like that if there's anything you can give please consider giving if you can't give we still love you spread the word most of our audiences come from word of mouth and we really appreciate y'all spreading the word to folks at your church folks in your small group, folks at school, and so on. So thank you for the support. As always, Anne Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politics with the bo- politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Anne Camp. I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I said kingdom